Well, what a weekend. What a few days it has been in the world of Formula 1. And if you thought that the Hungarian Grand Prix was dramatic enough, well, the last few days, Fernando Alonso's move to Aston Martin, Oscar Piastri being confirmed and then unconfirming himself from Alpine, plenty of drama from the last few days. And that's not to take away from another Max Verstappen victory, the Hungarian Grand Prix, another double podium for Mercedes and another weekend where the strategy fell apart in dramatic style for Ferrari. We're going to be talking about all of that in this week's podcast. Yes, this is the Armchair F1 podcast. Well, as ever, you can follow the Armchair F1 podcast across social media at Armchair F1 pod. And of course, you can listen to us across all major streaming platforms as well. Well, we are now in the depths of the summer break. But as Formula One goes on a break for four weeks, this podcast is not. And it's fair to say, over the last few days, we have had probably more news, more drama and more excitement in some ways than we've had across the whole season so far. It's like when you when you have those weeks sometimes where it feels that everything is just following one after another and you don't know where to keep up. That has been the last week in Formula One on and off track as well. Some very familiar storylines, some new twists and turns in some old ones as well. And we are going to be covering all of that in this week's episode. But let's start off with the Hungarian Grand Prix at the weekend. And we are anticipating a very good race. And boy, oh boy, did the Grand Prix deliver a little bit of rain on Saturday to spice the weekend up with George Russell taking his maiden pole position in Formula 1. One that did not look likely at any point up until he put that lap in in Q3. But you could hear the excitement from across um, the stands in the Hungara ring. Toto Wolff indeed being very satisfied with George Russell's performance. And then come race day, Max Verstappen, who had um, some engine issues in Q3, struggling to get power in the car, qualified 10th, then would go on to win the race. Very dramatically indeed. The fastest car, at least for at least for four-fifths of the race, I would say Max Verstappen, the fastest car on track, without any doubts. It's a very fast comeback drive towards the end of the race, particularly from Lewis Hamilton and Carlos Sainz on the soft tyres. But in the end, Verstappen, despite spinning after his second pit stop and potentially losing out to Charles Leclerc, managed to win the race with Lewis Hamilton in second. George Russell in third, so repeat of the podium from the previous French Grand Prix. Carlos Sainz in fourth, Sergio Perez in fifth, and Charles Leclerc having led for a lot of the middle of the race, coming home to round off the top six in sixth. Lando Norris, Fernando Alonso, Esteban Ocon, and Sebastian Vettel completing the points. Well, let's bring in um, my two wonderful guests this week to talk about what was a dramatic Hungarian Grand Prix. Joe and Josh are back again. Joe, let's start off with you. Um, Max Verstappen, um, title of the podcast this week, Spin When You're Winning, and it's fair to say Verstappen not only both spun, but won. Very good summary, not much more to say. He was fantastic, one of his best races of the season, but it seems like I say that every single weekend. What an incredible year Max Verstappen is having. It always happens when a driver wins their first world championship in controversial fashion, you're thinking, oh, will they ever win again? Yes, they will. And much more dominantly than the year before. I'm pretty sure he would have been at least on the front row in qualifying had he not had those issues. There was a moment on Saturday, I confess, where I thought maybe he'd held up cars behind him. I don't know why he'd gone on to a slow lap, but going round when everyone else was trying to do fast ones. 
but it was a judge that he hadn't held anyone up, didn't get a grid penalty, but I'm pretty sure that even if he had, he would have found a way to win that race because, let's be honest, the pace advantage for so much of it was just incredible versus a Ferrari that, to me, should have been so much quicker, at least four tenths around this track. Red Bull found the pace with Max Verstappen this weekend. He made everybody, including his teammate Sergio Perez, look pretty amateur in terms of outright pace. And with the exception of Lewis Hamilton, I don't really think anyone came close to him on race day. Not at all. I mean, Verstappen has been on Inspires form, and we've spoken about that so much over the last few months. But to have, I guess, the first real mistake from Verstappen, where he spun um, just after a second pit stop and lost a place to Charles Leclerc, and then almost re-overtook him a couple of laps later and looked pretty much untouchable from that point. I mean, Josh, it's fair to say going into the summer break, Red Bull and Verstappen already look far and ahead above every other car and every other driver on the grid. But that performance in Hungary coming from 10th, having to make his way up through the field and make those overtakes, the fact that in the many ways Verstappen still looked, I would say, reasonably dominant by the time he crossed the line, his victory still so assured... I think that just tells you just how much of a class he and the team are above everyone else this year. In a way, and this is going to sound quite strange, there's not really a lot of pressure on him. There's a lot of pressure Charles Leclerc is putting on himself. And indeed, people were putting on Charles Leclerc to challenge Max. But because Max has got that sort of first championship under his belt, I just don't feel like there's a lot of pressure for him um, because he, he knows he's been there. He's done it before. It's something that, I, I sort of think back to uh, a few weeks ago when Nick Kyrgios was struggling for a five-set game. He then came out and said, look, my track record in five-set games is is spotless. You know, I have that self-belief that I can pull it out even in, in the, in the uh, I don't know, not darkest of situations, but, um, but when things are not going well. And I feel like Max Verstappen has a similar mindset in that he's been there, he's done it before. He's And honestly, this is... I, I don't know what Red Bull were thinking heading into the Sunday after qualifying, but this was like best case scenario. Um, you know, we, we hear about certain teams, maybe at certain tracks, they'll concede, you know, we're just trying to do the best we can. Um, we're not necessarily going to win the race, but we're just going to try and damage limitation. Uh, this was beyond damage limitation. This was a stunning result for him. Um, and yeah, it, again, it just, it goes, it just shows, his his qualities and i feel like you know when when not caught up in this sort of intense battle that we were last year's championship and i'm not saying this year's championship hasn't been as intense but i feel like people can appreciate what the qualities max verstappen brings because it, it's there to see it's it's clear to see and i think he's done an amazing job and again and this race goes out to demonstrate that he is I mean, he is the toughest, he's the best driver in, on the grid at the moment. Mm, no doubt about that whatsoever. Just going into the summer break, and there was an interesting stat that I saw, which I think tells you just how dominant Verstappen has been this season, but also the many missed opportunities and mistakes from Ferrari and from Charles Leclerc as well. Um, Max Verstappen's 80 points lead um, in the Drivers' Championship going into the summer break has only been bettered by Sebastian Vettel's 85-point lead over Mark Webber in 2011. And considering we've had some championships, I can think back to 2013, where, again, Vettel and Red Bull were class above the rest of the field. Um, the fact that this is the second-highest dominance 
amongst many years where there's been a particularly dominant driver and a particularly dominant car. It just says a lot about just how good Verstappen has been this year. And for everyone who almost said that Red Bull putting all of their eggs into 2021 and going for that championship that year, well, it's fair to say I don't think Red Bull were quite putting all their eggs in one basket there. Um, We can't talk about Verstappen's dominance and, of course, that 80-point lead that he has without talking about perhaps some of the reasons why that lead has been so big. And once again, we're talking about old storylines. Um, a dominant Verstappen victory, but once again, Ferrari throwing away a potential race victory with some questionable strategy calls at the very least. Um, having seen both Alpine struggle on the hard tyres, um, Ferrari inexplicably pitted both Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz onto the hard tyres um, towards um, at their second pit stops. And again, Leclerc himself openly bemused and confused as to why he was put onto this strategy. Well, um, Leclerc would eventually go on to make a final stop towards the end of the race where he put the soft tyre on. Um, Carlos Sainz had also run longer and put the soft tyre on. But again, not enough for either driver to finish in the end on the podium. And Leclerc throwing away what could have easily been a potential victory could easily have been a second place as well. Um, Joe, it's fair to say um, Ferrari have made some big strategic mistakes um, that have contributed to Verstappen's massive lead over the Clare, but this one, it seems, really did throw the race away. This is the worst one of the season, and the worst one I can remember from Ferrari in quite a long time, significantly worse than Monaco, and you remember how incensed I was about that. A lot of Ferrari's strategic mistakes are either a lack of activity in a high-pressure moment or doing something that would have made sense a couple of minutes ago, but not at the contemporary moment. This weekend, they did something that made no sense at any point in the race. It should not be possible, Cam, for me, somebody who knows basically nothing about Formula One strategy or engineering, to come on this very podcast, say the one thing you do at the Hungara Ring is that you don't put the harder tyres on towards the end of the race, only Ferrari to do exactly that and see the results, which were, as I, as I said last week, basically inevitable. Ferrari had not run the hard tyres at any point during the Hungarian Grand Prix weekend before they decided to put them on Charles Leclerc's car, who was reacting to Max Verstappen, who'd come in the lap before. Forgetting, of course, that it doesn't matter whether or not you whether you pit one lap after you've been undercut or five laps after you've been undercut. It's still an undercut. Red Bull will get the advantage on you. Either commit to your strategy or or you accept the loss. They could have committed to their strategy. Leclerc was more than happy on his medium tyres. They had a lot of life left. Absolutely no reason whatsoever to change to the hard tyres. They were so obsessed with Red Bull, they couldn't even run their own race. But they were obsessed with Red Bull and no one else. Kevin Magnussen had put the hard tyres on in a newly upgraded B-spec Haas and was skating backwards through the order. Daniel Ricciardo, who'd started in the top 10, had put hard tyres on his McLaren and was going backwards against slower cars. They didn't look at anyone else. They didn't look at the overwhelming data that was there. But even if they had, and it had made sense to put the... Even if it had, and it hadn't had been a disaster for these cars, it made no sense at any point in that race for Ferrari to put the hard tyres on the car with absolutely no material data throughout the weekend to prove it. And yet they chose to. 
It is by far and away the worst strategic decision Ferrari have made this year, and they deserve to lose both championships. Well, I don't think there is any way you could disagree with that whatsoever. Um, Josh, it's an interesting one here because we've spoken so many times about strategic blunders by Ferrari, but in some ways, it's there's two things that stand out. Firstly, the fact that Ferrari didn't look at, at the Alpines putting the hard tyres on, didn't look at Magnussen, didn't look at Ricardo's pace on the hard tyres and the fact that they were struggling, the fact they were going backwards and that it just made no sense whatsoever. So that being point number one. But secondly as well, and I think Joe was bringing this up as well, this obsession with Red Bull that Ferrari seemed to be so reactive entirely to what Red Bull were doing that any strategy plan that they had goes out the window and almost like they're not running their own race. And you could see with Carlos Sainz, and the strategy they were running there, having him on hard tyres towards, sorry, in the soft tyres towards the end of the race, you could see them running more of their own strategy in relation to Carlos Sainz, which allowed him to make overtakes and get closer towards the Mercedes by the end of the race. But certainly, if you're Charles Leclerc, and it seems that Leclerc is always just reacting to what Verstappen does because that's what Ferrari believe is in their best interest in the championship, you can see that this is hurting Leclerc in many ways, more than it's hurting Carlos Sainz. Yeah, I mean, I don't have too much to add to what Joe laid out there. Um, look, I understand you got to take risks to win a championship. I understand, you know, especially when it's a two-horse race and, you know, you have a direct opponent to beat. Sometimes you'll do that. But it just, in the moment, in the context, it just didn't make sense. Um, and there, you know... They're under the spotlight. They're not, and they're not really coping with the pressure. Um, as we've, you know, I don't think, I don't think this is a new point. Uh, certainly not this season. Um, and um, it, you know, you feel for Charles Leclerc because, he, you know, I you don't have that many opportunities to have an to go for a championship in a in an F one drives career. I mean, I'm sure he. I mean, I'm sure he, with his talent, he can manifest those, but. For, there have been drivers as talented as him, maybe less so, that haven't been able to get themselves into this opportunity that often in their career, maybe once. Um, and, yeah, you feel for him because, obviously, he's at the mercy of what the, the strategy... Uh, cha- if the strategy changes, he, you know, there's not much... I mean, he can obviously offer off his opinion, but the team are the ones responsible for doing so. Um, I, you know, I don't think he. I mean, I, I'm I'm pretty sure it's saying he definitely didn't want to put the hards on, but uh, it's you know it's difficult because you know we talk about the French Grand Prix and that was obviously his mistake, right? Um, and now we you know we have a situation where the team made a mistake, and it's just it's it, I imagine for many neutrals, uh, it's it's disappointing and. Um, you know, it, it it people want a f- fair title fight, but it doesn't help when the team that's trying supposed to provide the fight keeps shooting themselves in the foot. And it's interesting this as well because we've spoken so many times about Ferrari potentially being inexperienced within the fight this year, and we're talking a lot about um, the Claire's mistakes, Ferrari's strategic mistakes. But there comes a point that if you think, for example, Mercedes might have a quicker car this year, this is the best chance Ferrari going to have for some time. I mean, Joe, is there anything reasonably that Ferrari could do right now, I guess, as a short-term and potentially a longer-term fix to change the situation strategy-wise? Because these mistakes that keep coming up, 
not only do they reek of inexperience, but as we're seeing time and time again, they are costing Leclerc and Ferrari in relation to Verstappen and Red Bull. It hasn't fixed the issue in the past, but I think a lot of us have been particularly concerned and disappointed by Ferrari's personnel um, in the last few years. Not just not just uh, Mattia Bonotto at the top, but also the two race engineers, Ricardo Adami and Xavier Marcos, who is uh, Charles Leclerc's race engineer, who's made some pretty weird calls throughout this season. There's Inyaki Rueda, who's a name that I keep repeating. He's the Ferrari chief strategy officer. Now, I've heard from some people, however, these are far from reliable sources, so I wouldn't pay too much attention to them, saying that Rueda is basically on his own. He hasn't got a strategic team behind him. If that's the case, for God's sake, get a team behind this guy because he can't do it on his own quite clearly. If he has got a team behind him, then sack him. I don't call for people's heads in the company, give him a different job somewhere else, make sure he doesn't go destitute. But Inyaki Rueda cannot be Ferrari's chief strategy officer if he's had support come the Belgian Grand Prix because he is single-handedly responsible for, in real terms, at least 60 points of this team's losses this year. My final point would be people are saying sack Mattia Bonotto now. I don't think so. I don't think that really changes anything. If, however, Mercedes finished second in the constructors ahead of Ferrari, Bonotto's got to go at the end of the year because you cannot justify with this chassis, this aero, this engine package, which is so superior to what Mercedes have, this driver lineup and the form that Charles Leclerc has been in when he hasn't been making mistakes, you cannot justify finishing behind Mercedes and the constructors. And this is what's so interesting because, you know, in terms of the chassis, for that F175 is probably the best chassis and the best aero package on the grid. The engine, yes, it's unreliable, but it is very quick. And the driver lineup, as you mentioned, you know, many people going into 2021 were saying that this was the best driver lineup on the grid. Going into 2022, a lot of people have said, again, very, very similar. So, Josh, there comes a point when it comes to these championship fights, and now we've got the summer break, and it's a time, I guess, for Ferrari to sit back and recharge and reassess going into the last nine races of the season. If you are Ferrari at the moment, I mean, what are you... What are you doing over the summer break? Because fundamentally, the drivers and the constructors' championships are slipping away and potentially have already slipped away from them. And with all of these mistakes, as Joe said, they're falling closer into the clutches of Mercedes. You're you're just planning. You're you're learning. You're obviously going back through the tape and trying to learn from old mistakes you made. But then you're planning because. And you're planning in every scenario. You're not just planning for if the race goes completely well. You're planning for if uh, Red Bull in one race pull off an undercut that ends up in front. You're you're planning for everything so it doesn't look like you're reacting, right? We're criticizing them for appearing to react to everything. How you don't do that is if you have a plan for all scenarios. So you have a plan for when Red Bull are 10 seconds clear with a pit stop to spare. You're planning for all of these scenarios, right? Um, you know, it, it's, I, you know, it, it's, it's kind of weird that if Joe, I, and I, I don't have any reason not to trust Joe, but um, that they only have one person in charge of strategy um, because this is a, a especially, well, I, in sporting stakes wise, this is massive, right? And you can't just have one person doing this on their own because that's that's a hell of a lot of responsibility and a lot of things to entrust them. So, I if I would if I was them, I would just honestly just go through all all the races, all the mistakes that you've sort of made, and just just plan, just go through it, just and and plan and just make 
plans for every single scenario, um, every track even, just pour over them, uh, the, the remaining tracks that are to come. Um, because, because, you know, I, I mean, we, 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 you know, we look at practice sessions and, you know, and, and you learn a lot from obviously tire degradation and they do all their tests and stuff. But in terms of race strategy, I mean, obviously the tire degradation information helps when it comes to those tracks, but like you can plan, you can do a fair bit of the planning beforehand. You can do maybe 75%, 70% of the planning up to that point and then sort of incorporate those things in, but at least have plans in place that, um, that you can sort of run with. And obviously you have information on how tires do from, from the previous races already this season. So that's what I would be doing. Um, I, I don't know if they'll take advice from me, but um, I'm, I, I, don't, I, don't, I feel confident in saying that I'm probably not the only person who's probably advocating for this approach. And I think let's not forget as well, you mentioned some of these things, the fact that, you know, Ferrari only have potentially one strategist at the top of the team, whereas you'd imagine, you know, it's almost like giving the chief strategist charge of all strategy in every team. It's just little things perhaps that could make a difference. The whole theory of marginal gains, perhaps that Ferrari need to adopt. But I think it's going to be interesting seeing what Ferrari might do going into the second half of the season. You can almost tell, just depending on how many changes Ferrari have going into Belgium, the extent to which this may be them reacting. That is going to be very interesting indeed. Um, We need to talk about Mercedes in a little bit because this was a very good weekend for them. So we're going to do exactly that next here on the Armchair Fun Podcast. Well, let's move on to another team now. And one team that I think it's fair to say has been quite impressive of late has been Mercedes. Um, Not only did Lewis Hamilton secure his fifth straight podium um, at the Hungara ring. Again, it it sounds weird saying that considering just how dominant he's been over the last few years. But such has been, I guess, both the development of him and Mercedes in the last few races. But we saw, again, potentially the first realistic opportunity for Mercedes to win a Grand Prix this year at the Hungara ring and both drivers certainly staking their claim to that George Russell taking a scintillating pole position in Q3 a lap that I don't think many people expected whatsoever but in the changing conditions towards the end of qualifying George Russell coming through and taking a very good pole position for himself there um Lewis Hamilton having some issues with his DRS in Q3 meaning he only qualified in seventh but some very strong pace in the race on Sunday and a very, very quick last stint on his soft tyres elevated Lewis Hamilton from sixth up to second, where he would finish the race only seven and a half per second seconds behind Max Verstappen. And it's quite reasonable to say that Lewis Hamilton and George Russell, both of them stood a very strong chance of winning the race on Sunday. And especially with that quick, the quick pace that Lewis Hamilton was showing in his final stint could easily have won the race himself. Um, Josh, this was a very good weekend for Mercedes, the best all season they had, despite, interestingly, saying how far behind they felt on Friday. So I guess it's fair to say whatever their concerns were on Friday, those were quickly allayed because the pace throughout qualifying and race day when it mattered for Mercedes was scintillating. It was indeed. Uh, I certainly didn't call a pole position for them, much less, you know, I definitely didn't. I, and if I had to pick one of the two, I'd probably, the experience of Lewis Hamilton would have probably le- I'd have leaned towards that pick. Uh, but yeah, George Russell did brilliantly. Um, 
it's interesting. Uh, they've sort of talked about how perhaps it was just the fact that they got their tires in the sort of best condition at the right time during qualifying, uh, which makes sense because obviously then they had they were sort of they had a long they had a long day ahead of them trying to hold off whether it was a Ferrari behind them, a Red Bull behind them, whatever the scenario was. Um, but yeah, a lot. I mean, definitely, definitely um, a lot of positives for them. Their strategy obviously went pretty well. I mean, to be fair, beating Ferrari's strategy at this point doesn't really merit much than a sticker. Um, it's not that hard these days. But uh, it really encouraging things. And, you know, they've got obviously a few upgrades to come to the car as well to look forward to. Um, there's obviously going to be a, a technical clarification on bouncing that's going to come. And that's supposed to, as, as I'm, I mean, it's supposed to affect Red Bull and Ferrari. So that, that again may swing towards their favor. So definitely encouraging things from them uh, to think about heading to the summer break. And I, you know, who knows? We, I mean, it, you know, the, the rate Ferrari keep mistakes, making mistakes in, we've seen Red Bull obviously have go through their faults as well. There might be, enough time and enough wiggle room for a third team to sort of put themselves into the conversation a bit more. Indeed. And I think this is an interesting one because, and we've spoken about a lot, a lot about this, Joe, that Mercedes have obviously spent a lot at the start of the season, really putting a lot of emphasis on developing the car. And we've seen, for example, Lewis Hamilton running experimental setups, um, really trying to extract the most from it. But we've seen particularly Mercedes have always had a strong aero package and on a track that is so heavy, heavily reliant on aero as the Hungara ring, Mercedes really did deliver in qualifying and the race day. And it's fair to say for both Lewis Hamilton and George Russell as well, both of them had strong performances across the weekend. And both of them have really shown that there is pace in that Mercedes and they're starting to find that now. I would have predicted Mercedes would have a good weekend at the Hungara ring from the beginning of the year because the biggest issue with that car, as I've said all year, um, or the most consistent issue with the car is that it's down on pace because the Mercedes EQ engine just hasn't got the power of the Ferrari or the RBPT. However, at the Hungaroring, that doesn't really matter. I would have been very surprised, even even with the early W13 spec in the year, if Mercedes hadn't managed to pull out at least one car on the podium this weekend. In truth, they were further off the pace of Max Verstappen in the race than I actually thought they would be, considering that the team is usually better in race pace than quality trim. However, the drivers certainly didn't disappoint this weekend. I would never have expected George Russell would get his first pole position at this track. But Lewis Hamilton come race day, had his DRS not had an issue when he went for his final lap in Q3, I'm damn near convinced he would have been on pole position and he would have stood a chance. I don't think he would have beaten Max Verstappen necessarily, but he would have stood a chance come race day of winning uh, his first race of the year. Because if there's anywhere Lewis Hamilton is going to win in that car this year, it would have been at the Hungara ring. Absolutely. And I think it's just interesting to point out obviously yes obviously Lewis Hamilton had that issue with his uh, DRS in Q3 that did cost him a lot of time there on the straights but you know for a team where we're saying at the start of the year they were off the pace Lewis Hamilton particularly off the pace now both drivers seem to be getting most out of the car Lewis Hamilton's form in the last few races has been exceptional and Mercedes really are now writing themselves into the conversation in terms of potentially second place in the championship which it's an interesting one, I guess, given where Ferrari were at the start of the season. I guess, um, Josh, looking at the championship at the moment, looking at potentially what we could expect from Mercedes going into the latter stage of the season, 
Is it a realistic prospect to say that Mercedes could finish ahead of Ferrari? Is this now something perhaps you'd expect them to do? And I guess building on from that, is there any more development you reckon Mercedes would put into this car to enable them to do that? Or do you reckon they may think about prioritising 2023 over that? But to unpack the first part, the first question you asked, I... I still anticipate Ferrari will, will, will finish ahead of Mercedes come uh, the end of the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. I believe that's the ending one. Mm. Um, will I be surprised if Mercedes end up beating them? No, not really. But I'm, and, and I am, and I'm sure other Formula One fans are, expecting Ferrari to improve uh, their strategy calls and, and improve. Although, you know, have they over the course of the first half of the season? They haven't. Uh, but I would still expect them to improve their decision making, improve their their calls, and I, I expect you know even with the upgrade Mercedes are going to have, I still feel like Ferrari their car technically is still at a at a at a more advanced stage and and certainly the faster car. Um, so I it, it would take look if Ferrari keep up at this 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 form and when i say this form july specifically into the second half then mercedes definitely have a chance but i'm not anticipating that um just yet uh the second part of your question or your second question rather um will they prioritize i i don't know um because i think they all want to you know send out a bit of a message to the sport i think because obviously you know, they have fallen back a bit. Um, and so I, I don't want to say that they've been vulnerable, but obviously teams have felt that they've been able to sort of mix it with them, especially the first part of the season. Um, so I still think they'll, they'll put in some significant upgrades that will boost this and, you know, have them competing for wins and podiums and stuff. And I'm sure the drivers obviously want that as well. George Russell in his first Mercedes season, he, he'll, he won't want them to sort of give up on this season. And Lewis Hamilton, uh, you know, I, I, I don't I don't want to be the person to, uh, trying to envision when he's going to step away from the Formula One uh, cockpit, but I'm sure he'll want to keep he'll keep sort of this momentum going and sort of ride this wave. But um, yeah. So it, with that, so with that all said, I don't think I don't anticipate them sort of giving up on this season just yet. But I'm sure they'll have an eye towards it and and an eye as they always do and. And you know, they'll they'll be competitive next March. I'm sure when it when it comes to you know the season beginning 2023 season. So I have no doubts that they'll be ready for that. Yeah, I think we can have very little doubt about their competitiveness next year at all. I think one of the interesting things though, and I guess we always talk about sort of how late do you develop a car if you have higher expectations for next year. We've seen perhaps with Ferrari. And putting less emphasis on the two years that that's something that, you know, seemingly worked for them. And certainly you could say with the aero package they produced worked for them at the start of the year. Equally, there were fears that Red Bull and Mercedes developing their cars so late into 2021 would have cost them going into this year and potentially more mixed results on that regard there. Um, Joe, I guess what should Mercedes expect in the second half of the season, because I would say certainly without the last few races, and I say Austria onwards, I would say that Mercedes will not in any way at all have considered making getting second place in the Constructors' Championship a priority. But the fact that they can now do it, and the fact they're now so close to being able to do it, 
you know, do you see Mercedes now realistically saying that we're going to go for second in the Constructors' Championship and we're going to get the money that comes from that? That's now a priority for us. Or do you think that there will be a time Mercedes might look ahead to 2023 more than this year? The money for second in the Constructors can only go so far, considering that this is the cost cap era of Formula One and a lot of what they win will not be allowed to go on development of the car, especially with the budget cap being so punitive relative to inflation and Mercedes literally finishing second in the Constructors. And I'm pretty sure the payout might even be, well, the payout will be so high that it it won't even fit within the cost cap. If Mercedes go into the second half of the season with the full intention of developing the W13 for a second place scrap with Ferrari, they can expect a returns because I've said all year that the Mercedes W13 simply is not a solid framework to build a championship car on. There is a reason why no other team on the grid took that aero concept. There is a reason that Haas evaluated that concept, decided to go against it. Mercedes can commit to it as much as they like. It fundamentally is not the best aero package on the grid in terms of straight line speed or cornering. The low pack, the, the tight packaging on this occasion has not worked. It's just that their chassis is a, on tracks like the Hungaroring. It's comparable to what Ferrari and Red Bull are putting out. They can absolutely rely on their drivers. They can rely on their core personnel. But for me, there's no pressure to try and beat Ferrari and the constructors because it's diminishing returns financially speaking if they do so, considering that they can't even use it. And if if Ferrari don't improve in the second half of this year, everything we have seen up to this point indicates that Mercedes will be able to overtake them just by doing their jobs, by not apocalyptically screwing up every other weekend. Um, Ferrari have their own out their combust. Ferrari have their own issues trying to sort out their combust- combustible power unit. So there's no pressure on Mercedes to develop. Get on the W14. You're not going to win anything this year. Absolutely, I think I agree 100 percent with you on that. And I think it's uh, it's just the fact that for Mercedes, it's a case. I think people have sort of expected and written them into third place this season that there's so much more expectation and so much more potentially that you can get from the car next year i mean i do think mercedes will give it a good go i don't think they're going to prioritize and i think that's going to be very interesting to see as we come towards the end of the season in some ways the fact that ferrari have kept making all of these mistakes that Charles Leclerc has obviously had his fair share of mistakes and the unreliability of the ferrari power unit has been as it has this season in some ways, that's what's puts Ferrari closer to Mercedes than it has been the case that they've been closer to Red Bull. Mercedes themselves haven't really put themselves, I would say, as close to Ferrari as Ferrari have to Mercedes. And that's the crucial bit here. If Ferrari can fix some of these gremlins going into the second half of the season, they're going to get away from their Mercedes and their returns are going to be consistently higher. So fundamentally, yes, I think Mercedes have the third fastest car. Let's put more emphasis into next year that's going to have a far greater impact for them. Um, We've got to finish off the Hungarian Grand Prix in a bit. It's our W's and our L's from the weekend. Stick around here on the Armchair F1 podcast. Let's go back now to our W's and L's for the weekend. A driver, a team or something from the weekend that we think has been particularly good, something that deserves particular praise and then something a driver team track whatever something from the weekend that we think deserves particular criticism a w and an l from the weekend um let us start off on a positive note let's start off with our w's and um josh i know we've already briefly talked about him but um max verstappen your w um 
for the Hungarian Grand Prix. We've covered, obviously, just how peerless he was coming through from 10th to 1st. And the spinner side just looked totally dominant all weekend. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, I mean, look, they they qualified, obviously, 10th. There were issues with the car. They ended up first on the Sunday. I mean, if that's not the definition of a W, I don't know what it is. <laughs> what was a d- damage limitation strategy mm. ended up being a race win. Uh, like, that's all you can really ask for. Um, yeah, I don't see how he's not a, a W. It's a pretty obvious one, uh, granted. But yeah, it's a massive, massive win for him. Without doubt. I think such a fantastic performance. Um from Max Verstappen and one of those ones where it shows that even when he's making mistakes he's still winning just shows how peerless and dominant he is in the car this year um Joe let us come on to you next um this is someone you've always had a lot and a lot of time for a lot of support for but hasn't been delivering on your high expectations recently but it's fair to say he had a decent weekend at the Hungara ring despite not scoring any points though we are talking about Pierre Gasly this is the state of AlphaTauri this year that a great Pierre Gasly weekend almost always results in absolutely zero points because Jesus Christ, that team has fallen off the cliff in terms of car development this year. He had a bad qualifying day. Both him and Sonoda both had lap times deleted in Q1 for going over track limits. However, looking at the replays and of course knowing the AlphaTauri 8003 for the dog that it is, I am pretty certain that the corner well, that going wide has got nothing to do with them themselves making a mistake it's because the car simply does not bloody turn when you want it to uh, so his qualifying was screwed but in the race Pierre Gasly ended up finishing 12th in a car that even I was predicting would be particularly terrible this weekend he was making really good overtakes at the Hungara ring no less against objectively faster cars seemed to run the race on a good strategy managed his tyre wear really well and yet again made Yuki Tsunoda look absolutely amateur were it not for Verstappen and Hamilton, uh, Gasly would have been my driver of the day, although I will give a little silver medal W to Bernadette Collins, who is the outgoing strategy chief at Aston Martin. There is absolutely no explanation for how she managed to get cars that should have been finishing 15th and 16th into 10th and 11th. Pure strategic genius in her final ever race for Aston Martin. Indeed, and you know, so many times with, with a lot of these midfield teams, it's plucky strategic calls and really strong overtaking that gets cars into higher positions than where they deserve to be. So yes, both Pierre Gassi and Bernadette Collins deserve a lot of plaudits for their work around the Hungara ring. Um, I'm going to give a W now. I think one driver who has been very impressive in the way he has, I would say outdriven his McLaren this season, but certainly given perhaps a relative drop in pace in the McLaren compared to last year, the fact he's still comfortably the best of the rest and showing what he can do in that car. I'm, of course, talking about Lando Norris. Um, McLaren looks so strong this weekend. Like, it was um, it was very impressive indeed. And I think one of the, the interesting things I found, just look at some of the um, pace that McLaren had in practice. And this, in many ways, contributes to both my W and my L this weekend. Um, Lando Norris in fourth, um, Daniel Ricciardo in eighth in FP1. Norris really mixing it amongst the top drivers this weekend. In second practice, Norris managing to get that car into second, um, showing some really good one-lap pace. Ricciardo slightly behind in fifth. Come qualifying, Lando Norris puts his McLaren on the second row 
with a 117.7, just four tenths off the pace of George Russell, just two tenths off the pace of Charles Leclerc. A peerless drive from Lando Norris, one that I was very impressed by. But then come race day, certainly whilst the top three teams and the top six started to get away, Lando Norris, a very, very assured best of the rest, drove in many ways a very quiet race where no one was challenging him. And just again, showing that he is getting the most out of that McLaren, showing that he is the driver to get the pace out of it and comfortably ahead of the rest of the midfield in this weekend. And Lando Norris at the moment, you just look at the the championship standings, Norris in seventh, comfortably ahead of Esteban Ocon and Valtteri Bottas and really showing just how impressive he is this season in that McLaren car. And in many ways, had he had a better teammate than Daniel Ricciardo, then we could be looking more at McLaren in fourth in the championship rather than Alpine. Or indeed, if they didn't have Lando Norris, McLaren would be a lot further behind. It just proves just how important he has been to McLaren this this year. And that weekend, I think, demonstrates it more than many others. Um, Let's move on to RLs now. Um, Joe, I'm going to come back to you first on this time because... Um, we've started off with Alpha Tauri. We're going to go now to the other side of Alpha Tauri to Yuki Sonoda. Yeah, I mean, we've already talked a lot about the Ferrari pit wall, so I can't push all of those into the L for the week. But Yuki Sonoda, for the fourth weekend out of the last five, for me, was the worst driver on the grid in terms of performance throughout the weekend. And the only reason that he didn't get that honour in France is because he got taken out before he could make his inevitable mistake in the second portion of the race. Um out-qualified Gasly almost on a technicality because as I've said Gasly got his lap time deleted but come the race he was absolutely nowhere granted he had some car damage but it just does not explain how consistently off the pace he was he also spun at the top chicane which was a pretty amateurish move just as every weekend goes by the amount of defense that Yuki Tsunoda is getting from uninformed fans is really beginning to drive me up the wall this guy look Formula One was an experiment with him pushing him in after just one season in Formula Two. For me, it just has not worked. He should not be on the grid next year. And at this point, it looks like he will be on the grid next year because incredibly, despite having five F2 drivers, there is no one in the Red Bull Academy ready to replace him. Yeah, and I think it says a lot that we talk here about Yuki Tsunoda and all of the constant mistakes that he's making Yet, also just how much the Red Bull Academy has grinded to a halt as well. Uh, Another very bad weekend for Yuki Tsunoda. And certainly not doing enough to justify his continued seat in in Formula 1. Especially given just how much the market has spiced up recently. Um, Let's move on to Mayo next. Because again, we've gone from one side of one garage to the other. I'm going to go back to McLaren and talk about Daniel Ricciardo now. A man very much under a lot of pressure, intensifying pressure. And again, I was giving you the practice positions just to give you context about how much pace that McLaren had. A car that has a very good aero package and where one where, the again, the weaker Mercedes engine isn't as much of an issue here. The lesser power, not something that you need at the Hungara ring. Despite looking in potentially comparable pace to Lando Norris throughout practice, Daniel Ricciardo qualified in ninth. Take out Max Verstappen's engine and power issues, then he would have been 10th right at the back of Q3. And then in the race, yes, McLaren put him onto the hard tyres, but Ricciardo was dropping back so fast throughout that race, almost like he was putting up no effort. 
And in the end, finishing behind both Aston Martins, finishing behind Mick Schumacher and also Pierre Gasly as well. Drivers who, I think it's fair to say, were considerably slower than the McLaren. Indeed, if you look at just the comparable pace between the McLaren and between both McLaren drivers, Finlando Norris and Daniel Ricciardo, for him to finish 15th whilst Norris was best of the rest in 7th, having qualified in 4th, another disastrous weekend for Daniel Ricciardo and one that increasingly fails to justify a 2023 seat at McLaren and potentially a seat lower down the grid as well. So a big L for Daniel Ricciardo this weekend. Um, Josh, let's finish off with you. Um, I'm moving away from McLaren and AlphaTauri, you'll be pleased to hear, um, because we want to finish off talking about Kevin Magnussen and Haas, your L for the weekend. Yes, well, first of all, I want to get my, my Ferrari joke in. Ferrari, for uh, superhero movie fans, are the DCEU of Formula One, slow and reactionary and trying to keep up with their more illustrious counterpart. Uh, but rather than rag on them, which we have done, uh, a significant part of this of this podcast so far, uh, yeah, I'll give it to Kevin Magnussen uh, just because uh, obviously he ran with the car, the Haas car with the, with the upgrade compared to uh, Mick Schumacher's. Um, started in 13th the race, uh, made it to 10th, then made contact with Daniel Ricciardo, uh, set him back dramatically, uh, had to pit in lap five, and that pretty much uh, ended his race, really, because he couldn't get the hard tie to work, which, again, Ferrari, hint, hint, you could have paid attention to that tie performance over there. Um, but, yeah, they just, uh, just not a very good weekend for them, uh, a second pointless race for the team overall but i felt like you know magnuson at least you know with up, an upgraded car probably should have challenged a bit more for that top 10 maybe if he won on top 10 11 12 or something like that um yeah just not a great race uh i guess on to the next one really there's not really a sort mm-hmm. of technical fault there's not really a fault that go there's no thread line fault here it's just one of those races yeah, it's just one of those weekends that drivers get sometimes where nothing's seemingly going right for you, despite the fact that it seems everything should be. And yes, much. I mean, that Haas has clearly shown pace multiple times throughout the year, and particularly we've seen in Austria as well, just how quick the Haas could be on the right track on its day. And both drivers, Kevin Magnussen and Mick Schumacher. So I think a very important and crucial second half of the season for both the team and their drivers as well. Be interesting to see what goes on at Haas next. Well, that is it for the Hungarian Grand Prix. A very dramatic one indeed. But we have to go to the news that happened the day after. Because as soon as we left the Hungaro ring, the Formula One world, it's fair to say, was not quiet whatsoever. Because the driver market in silly season has taken a massive turn up for the books. And that's what we're going to be talking about next here on the Armchair F1 podcast. Well, it's the summer break, but it's fair to say the news in the Formula One world doesn't stop. And you may remember a couple of weeks ago, we did an episode on the silly season shenanigans, that time of the year where the driver market is in full swing and teams are looking to change their lineups going into 2023, seeing if they can improve it, maybe get an experienced old hand, some younger talent, see what that can do to improve the team. But it's fair to say that this year's silly season is sillier than ever before and a lot of that goes down to I guess a couple of big decisions that we were not expecting 
whatsoever. We were expecting, of course, a lot of the lineups to stay relatively the same. A couple of exceptions, Oscar Piastri may be moving to Williams, but very little change apart from that. But Formula One World has been shocked, it's fair to say, by some quite big moves in the driver market in the last couple of weeks. Um, of course, a big one to start off with. We mentioned Sebastian Vettel's retirement last week before the Hungarian Grand Prix. A lot of names were thrown up for his potential replacement. Pierre Gasly was a name that was going around quite a bit. Oscar Piastri, again, another name that was on many people's lips. But no one was expecting Fernando Alonso, who many people assumed was going to be sticking at Alpine for another couple of seasons, sticking in the Team Enstone environment. On Monday morning, Fernando Alonso announced that he would be moving to Aston Martin for 2023. Um, Alonso has signed a multi-year contract with Aston Martin, expected to be his last contract in Formula 1. Of course, Alonso now being at the age of 41. So certainly in the later years of his career. Um, Speaking of Aston Martin, this is what Alonso said on Monday. He said that the Aston Martin team is clearly applying the energy and commitment to win and is therefore one of the most exciting teams in Formula 1. He goes on to later say that no one in Formula 1 today is demonstrating a greater vision and absolute commitment to winning and that is a really exciting opportunity for me. Alonso very much emphasising that for him, Aston Martin has the hunger and the ambition, as he describes it, to fight and continue to fight at the front. Um, This is such... It's a very interesting move and one that not many people expected. Let's get straight into this. Um, Josh, let's start off with you here, because for many people, Aston Martin against Alpine at the moment, Aston Martin has the weaker car, It doesn't seem, certainly there's been, certainly over the last couple of years, a disquiet, it seems, emerging from within Team Silverstone. So, in many ways, this seems like a backward step for Fernando Alonso, one potentially typical of a lot of his moves um, in the past. But, does is this a move that, I guess, makes sense for him and for Aston Martin? Uh, For him, yes, I will say that. I mean, I was surprised. And granted, you know, we, we know about Aston Martin, obviously that car's not competitive to Alpine. It's not in the same sort of stratosphere. Um, but I understand it. And not to, again, uh, not to bring another comparison into another sport, but recently I was listening to a podcast uh, breaking down Tom Brady's decision to U-turn. He retired, for those who don't know, and then a few months later he decided, he, no, he didn't want to retire. He wanted to keep going. And I sort of see that... To me, Alonso and, and Tom Brady, they're sort of driven by the love of their respective sports and their, and their game. They're like just born competitors. And just, it, I mean, Alonso, granted, and, uh, and I, I don't know what was said in the negotiations, but the belief is that Alpine would, didn't give him enough years in the contract as much as Aston Martin seemed to offer. Um, and I just don't blame him if he wants to prolong his career at the highest, we, we say F1 is the highest level of racing in 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 in, in motorsport um i don't see i don't blame him for you know wanting to keep going at it keep going and crack at it because he, he loves the sport clearly he's come back to it a few times and um yeah i just i i think it makes sense if that was the only other option on the table if alpine weren't i mean alpine i'm sure we're, we're thinking about keeping him but it makes sense in that 
you know, he's, he's a born racer. He wants to keep competing at the highest level. Um, so for that, I understand it. It's just the love of the sport that, that, you know, he's, he's got a love for formula one and it makes sense. Um, from Aston Martin's point of view, I think so. Uh, getting an experienced person in, obviously, you know, they've, they're obviously, and it's funny if you go on LinkedIn, Aston Martin and the team definitely trying to get the most uh, employees in at the moment in terms of hiring. It makes sense that they want an experienced driver who obviously knows the ins and outs, can give advice on decision making, whether it comes down to like what should we focus on, what how should we do this and that, um, and yeah, it, and obviously they're you know they're they're run by. <laughs> His name's funny to say, uh, so I'll just get that giggle out of the way. Mike Crack, who um, obviously we didn't know that much, and I don't think we knew how much experience he had in Formula One. Um, and obviously, an owner, Lawrence Stroll, who again isn't, in, I mean, obviously, he's through, he lives F1 through his son, but again, isn't someone who's like I necessarily know has grown up with the sport. So, getting that experienced driver in sort of balance those, those maybe deficiencies out. It, it makes the, it makes sense so I understand it from both parts actually um, despite obviously the initial sort of oh why is he going to Aston Martin they are so not competitive compared to Alpine narrative well I think without doubt this is certainly I think for Aston Martin a very good piece of business from Darth Stroll in terms of um, bringing um, Fernando Alonso into Aston Martin and you can see um, where they win from this you've got an experienced driver um, in some ways, I think as I, I said this last week that Stroll has always got, um, Lawrence Stroll, this has always had a very experienced driver, um, up against, um, everyone of, um, Lawrence Stroll's teammates, his son's teammates. To, I guess in some ways, when they absolutely dominate him, to make it almost like we we're expecting Lance to get dominated this season. So it's fine. We're just always, we can always just wait for it because we're not expecting him to come good here. But, I think for Alonso, they have someone who has a history of outdriving potentially less competitive machinery. And alongside this as well, you've got a driver who is very committed, will put the time, will put the effort in. So, you know, you can definitely see um, how Aston Martin benefit from this. Alonso is an interesting one. And I guess, Joe, there's all this. We've talked a lot about how much longer we Alonso wants to stay in Formula One and how much longer he has. Alpine, there's a lot of discussions about him seemingly being only offered to be effectively a seat warmer for Oscar Piastri to come into the seat in 2024. And Alonso to have one, maybe two years at most with Esteban Ocon locked into that other seat at Alpine. Do you think that and played uh, the most part, arguably, in Alonso seeking to leave Alpine and move on to another team, move on to Aston Martin, where... It seems Lawrence Stroll has given him the terms that he wants and the money to go with that too. Everything I've seen about this contract saga has indicated that Alpine were prepared to offer Fernando Alonso a multiple year extension. They just didn't do it straight away. And the psychological reporting, not that you can take it too seriously, indicates that the idea that they would hesitate in the first place was enough of an excuse for Fernando Alonso to look elsewhere. And once the Aston Martin interest came in, there was clear there was a package there for multiple years and let's be honest a pretty sizable financial payout probably higher than what Alpine were willing to give as well 
One of Alpine's tactics for bringing in drivers coming towards the end of their careers or perhaps are a little bit less stable on the grid is their hypercar program in the World Endurance Championship. But Fernando Alonso has already won the Le Mans 24 hours twice, so that also doesn't work upon him. Aston Martin is pretty clear. They offered him multiple years from the off, the chance to be a team leader from the off. No young drivers coming in, either from the off or in the near future, because Aston Martin don't have an effective junior program and a hell of a lot of money to go with it. Yeah, you can see why this works for Fernando Alonso. And obviously it'll be interesting to see if the machinery doesn't improve what he would do if he was dissatisfied then. But, you know, I can certainly see that... And it's an interesting one, this, because, you know, Aston Martin and Team Silverstone have historically been known um, to, I guess, exceed beyond expectations. And maybe having a driver whose reputation is established amongst exceeding expectations might be a very good move for them as well and it's a really interesting one here because Alpine it seems with Alonso when it came to the contractual negotiations they expected Alonso to be in their car next year come Monday morning it seems that Otmar Safnauer for the first time found out on Monday morning that Fernando Alonso would not be in the Alpine next year so you think at this point You'd think at this point that Alpine would have locked down that second seat pretty quickly. And of course, Oscar Piastri, who many people have been expecting to get that second Alpine seat, almost expected to get get the seat. And that's what we expected on um, Tuesday night. On Tuesday night, Alpine announced that Oscar Piastri would be racing um, in the Alpine next year alongside Esteban Ocon, promoted from his role as a reserve driver to a full-time race driver. That was what we were expecting. That's what we said that if Alonso left Alpine, that was what would happen. He'd get that seat. He'd be in the works team. And he'd be, again, having a very stern and exciting challenge alongside Esteban Ocon next um, week. But interesting announcement because, of course, the announcement being made in the middle of the night in Australia with very little fanfare. To some people, they sent something was up. And then at 7 p.m. UK time on Tuesday evening, there's this tweet from Oscar Piastri. I'm going to read the tweet in full because when I first saw it, it reminded me a little bit of Colleen Rooney's um, Instagram post um, when she um, was doing her, um, going through her Instagram account about leaking the private stories and finished off with the infamous words, it's Rebecca Vardy's account. This is Oscar Piastri's tweet. I understand that without my agreement, Alpine F1 have put out a pet rest release late this afternoon that I'm driving for them next year. This is wrong and I have not signed a contract with Alpine for 2023. I will not be driving for Alpine next year. So Piastri not only um, denying that the contract's in place, but closing off any opportunity that he had to take that second seat. Um, Joe, this has been pretty... Stunning news to come out on Tuesday evening. And we thought the Alonso news was big enough, but the Oscar Piastri contract drama, I don't think there has been a rookie who has never driven in a free practice session before, who had almost had a guaranteed race seat up until this point. There's not been a rookie who I think has perhaps attracted this much chaos within the driver market. And I think it's fair to say here that either Piastri or Alpine, one of them has mucked up massively here but it seems on the surface here that Alpine have once again been blindsided 
392,000 likes, 95.3 thousand retweets on a tweet from a driver who has literally never driven a Formula One car in anger before. Josh earlier said to us that that's the drive to survive effect. I think it's also because of the Oscar Piastri effect, just how incredible this guy's junior career has been in the last three years. And also just how inevitable this signing seemed to be until it all fell apart. This is the guy who's been in their academy for at least three years now, the guy that's won three rookie, three junior championships in a row as a rookie, something that even George Russell, as far as I'm aware, didn't manage to do. The natural successor to Fernando Alonso in terms of immediate pace, but also affinity with the Alpine and Team Enstone program. For it to fall apart so quickly and so dramatically, Alpine haven't lost a driver, they've lost the driver. They have never promoted a youngster before Guan Yu Zhou, they'd never got a single of their youngsters into Formula One. As of now, they still have never had a driver in their own factory team. For Oscar Piastri to walk away from a works drive in a top half car for his first season in Formula One is absolutely insane. But if I, if what I know about contract negotiations and professional sports is true, he won't have had an awful lot of say in this. It will have had far more to do with his personal manager, who is Mark Webber, a fellow Australian, and of course the negotiations between Alpine and, as we now understand, McLaren, who are trying to sign him for next year. Uh, Piastri ultimately cannot commit to Alpine if the contract with McLaren has already been signed. I've heard that it's already gone to the contract arbitration board and they say that whatever he signed with this other team is fair. Alpine do not have an immediate hold on him for, for the next season. Yeah, it's it's been an absolute mess, needless to say. Mm. And it's an interesting one, I think, partly as well, because there's so many... Um, there's so many sort of different theories going around about who exactly um, has signed what contract for where, who exactly has what terms, who in particular has the right to sign Piastri. So what seems to be interesting is that a lot of what's going around is that the 31st of July, so the day the Hungarian Grand Prix last Sunday, was the day that has been many people have been, many sources have been saying was the day that Oscar Piastri's Alpine contract um, in terms of where, how he he's being locked into Alpine, that was the day that that finished, meaning that starting on Monday, the 1st of August, the day that Alonso announced he was signing for Aston Martin, Piastri would be freely able to talk openly with other teams and sign contracts with them. Now, we understand that negotiations have been taking place between Oscar Piastri's management, um, that of course including Mark Webber, and Zach Brown and the team at McLaren, over the last few months and the assumption being that for Piastri to quite openly and walk away from a pretty much guaranteed drive from a team that have been nurturing and investing in him from a very young age for Piastri to walk away from that it must seem pretty settled that there is a drive available for him at McLaren because certainly his bridge at Alpine has been burnt now and the potential drive that Alpine may have offered him at Williams, for example, through the loan deal similar to Alex Albon with Red Bull this year, presumably that Alpine may have not been so willing to fund that next year, has having now publicly disavowed his race seat at the team. So, Josh, how safe can we assume that Piastri will be racing at McLaren next year, especially given the fact that for him to do that, Daniel Ricciardo has to be bought out of a very expensive contract. Um, 
Joe can testify to this because we were talking when the news sort of broke. I was very convinced that the McLaren deal was a done deal because, and granted, um, credit has to go to uh, Andrew Benson, obviously who writes Formula 1 to the BBC, a respected journalist, uh, in an article that he'd written covering sort of the Alonso, uh, the whole when the whole Piastri thing was unfolding, there was a little detail at the end of the article that said uh, that he had reported Otmar had said Piastri's unwillingness to drive for Williams, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here, was a consideration in their decision making. And it, you, you had you, it with that information, and I have no reason to doubt that information. Granted, it's it, he's reporting what Otmar's saying, so it sounds feasibly true if you've already if you're willing to already say to alpine i'm not going to drive for you again and alpine have already been made aware that you're unwilling to drive for williams why why would you give up that leverage because we know that f1 driver seats are it's a rare commodity it's a very hot commodity to have choice of two is a luxury to have the choice of three i mean it's it's beyond and so I just found it very strange that he was already he was already it was very clear to Alpine that he was unwilling to drive for Williams. He'd already then came out and said publicly, "I do not see myself driving for Alpine next season." It had to have been McLaren, otherwise, why it would have been a horrendous mistake, PR mistake, or whatever uh, for him and his team to make. And it just the conviction in that statement in that la- final part of the statement you've read out uh, about him being not wanting to drive Alpine was enough for me to set to, to infer and to, I mean, I don't want to say correctly infer because obviously we don't have any confirmation yet. And reports are that they don't want to confirm anything until Ricardo's futures um, is, is set out in stone. And obviously that's now under intense discussion. Um, it just feels as though it is a done deal because why give up that leverage? Just, mm. it doesn't make sense. Um, and it, you know, Mark Webber's, uh, you know, again, we've, uh, this is his, we've not, uh, obviously I feel like Piastri is probably his first client. I'm pretty safe in saying this. Um, he's an experienced guy. He knows the, the industry. He knows the business. He knows how important leverage is when it comes to driver's seats. So it just doesn't, it's sort of looking at the opposite argument of why would he, why, I mean, he has to be going to McLaren because why else would he, why else would he come out and, and with a sort of strong stance one, I, I'm, I'm going to say, yeah. Yeah, and I think this is so interesting in that you have to, you have to ask yourself that for Piastri, if he put this statement out and didn't have a confirmed deal at McLaren or indeed any other team, then, you know, he would ha- again have been in a situation where he doesn't have a seat again next year. And I remember all of the, criticism coming from the F1 community that he didn't have a seat after 2021. So to then not have a seat after 2022, it feels like the bridge would have been burnt, I think, with Piastri in terms of getting a seat in Formula 1, despite, again, how good his junior career was. The fact that if he is off the grid again next year, you know, realistically, those chances for him would be starting to dwindle. Um, Joe, we need to break down, I think, each part of this and, I guess, work out really who wins and who loses from this. So let's start off with Piastri himself here. Um, Piastri is very clear he's not going to be driving for Alpine. From what we understand, we've been very clear he's not going to be driving at Williams either. It seems that McLaren is the destination he's going to be going to, either that or, of course, he loses his seat as or just doesn't have a seat in Formula 1 at all next year. So... Joe, I guess firstly, 
Piastri at McLaren. Lando Norris, of course, a very formidable teammate. But arguably much more formidable than Esteban Ocon would have ever been for him. In an environment where he doesn't have the years of investment and nurturing that he's had from Alpine to bring him up to Formula 1, where in so many ways he's going to be expected to get results far more quicker. Interestingly, um, I was talking to Dylan about this before he came before he came there. He was unavailable today, but he said that he believes that this is a move that benefits both Piastri and McLaren. Is that something you would agree with? I'm not sure, and I say this because I don't know the ins- the inside environment of Team Enstone. And granted, I have heard a lot of reports that it's been an absolute mess for the best part of the last two years. But I just don't understand why. A works manufacturer with obviously a works engine in the back of the car, which right now is probably quicker than the McLaren in terms of outright pace. A teammate who, while no slouch, is far from unbeatable in Esteban Ocon in an environment around which you have been working for several years and will not explicitly relegate you to the role of a number two driver. I don't care how good your junior career is. That is about as good as you could possibly hope for in your rookie season. Charles Leclerc had Sauber. George Russell barely got onto the grid in a goddamn Williams, the worst of the last decade. It's it's difficult for me to, to justify cutting your ties with a works outfit when there were no confirmed seats available on the grid. On Mark Webber's point, I don't understand why you would wait, why you wouldn't wait, rather, until Fernando Alonso's future had been sorted. It would have to be around this mid-season point, so less time to wait. His contract's expiring at the end of 2022. Why can you not wait that time to see what options there are on the grid? Because everybody with a seat available would be interested in Oscar Piastri. For McLaren, I can see how he could be an upgrade on Daniel Ricciardo, at the very least in terms of compatibility with the car, but they're going to have to pay a lot of money to nullify the last year of Daniel Ricciardo's contract. And what sources I have inside Woking indicates that people are not happy with Zach Brown over the way contracts have been going at McLaren in the last few weeks. There was the whole Alex Polo situation in IndyCar, which was spun as a win for McLaren, but was a bit of a mess. This is a whole other level. This is going to be a very expensive divorce. Indeed, and when it comes to these expensive divorces as well, um, which Ricardo always has a weird habit of being involved in, we've noticed. Again, money being taken away from the rest of the team as well. Sure, there's the cost cap, but it's not a good situation, Dan, I think, for the team to have this on the back of their minds as well. I mean, Josh, in terms of what McLaren could expect from having Piastri, obviously we know that Danny Ricardo has struggled in the McLaren in the last couple of seasons. There's been no open secret about that. But let's not forget, Piastri is still a rookie. He's going to be taking his time to get into Formula 1. There's going to be mistakes that you wouldn't have got from Daniel Ricciardo, even um, for um, even despite his issues with pace over the last couple of years. I mean, sure, McLaren will have Lando Norris. They're going to have the consistency in the pace that he's got. But would you view Oscar Piastri as an immediate upgrade? Or do you see him being a much longer-term bet in which case McLaren are going to have to lock themselves into him for a few years to get everything out of him. It's definitely a long-term investment in mind. I mean, you're essentially betting that Oscar Piastri's first year in Formula 1, and granted, first it's we say first year, he's obviously been around the setup as a test driver for Alpine. He's been in the environment, so it's not... 
it's a rookie season, but sort of not because he's not a complete newcomer to this environment. But you're essentially betting that his first season is going to outperform Daniel Ricciardo's next season. I don't want to say last season. I hope it's not his last season, but his next season. So you're essentially betting that you're, 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 you're banking on, I guess, Ricardo's trajectory continuing to go downward as it currently is, or even flatlining, and that there's not going to be an improvement. You're essentially saying Piastri's first season is going to beat that. Now, granted, and we've seen with uh, Guan Yu Zhou's obviously had a, had a pretty good solid first season, but it's not always been rosy. Uh, there's been new tracks because obviously F2 and F1, the tracks, some of them differ. So, see, I, I feel like McLaren, obviously, it is a risk. It is, a, it is definitely a risk. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if we're back, if, you know, next year we're saying, oh, you know, Lando is not being challenged enough or Lando is carrying the team or, you know, sentiments like that. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if we're saying that. But McLaren are essentially saying we're happy to ride out those challenges more so than ride out the challenges we've had with Daniel Ricciardo at the moment. And that's, it, it's an interesting, I think to get, it's an interesting point of view to take, you know, I, I don't know at the moment if it's a convincing point, but um, because obviously this is year two of the new regulations, let's not forget. Um, and, you know, all the things that they'd have learned with Ricardo, they're essentially then going to have to, uh, and I know Piastri, again, he's been in this environment. He'll know what sort of the teething problems that drivers have had with these new regulations and cars will have these new regulations. But you're essentially ready to start on ground, re- reset, essentially, have a reset of, of that second cup seat. And it's a risk. And I don't know, you know, it's it's an investment that we can't really judge until maybe year mm. two or three. Um you know, so it, it, it's hard. It's hard. It's really hard to sort of because it's not say rookie for rookie. Like this is completely different. This is an experienced driver for rookie. It's completely two different scenarios, two different personalities. It's really hard to call whether they right now and say right now whether they've made the right decision or not. Time will tell. Um, but to answer your original question, I do think this is with the long term investment in mind. I don't think this is sort of a short term response, but it does say a lot that they are willing to take that bet that they'll rather ride with the sort of the first season pro, uh, teething issues with Piastri more so than with Ricardo at the moment. It, it, you know, it, it says a lot about where their confidence is with Ricardo at the moment, which is, you know, obviously counter to what they've publicly said in, in, in recent weeks and months. And I think in addition to this as well, it's interesting because obviously when you think about um, McLaren as well, um, Let's not forget, this is a team that gave Lewis Hamilton, Kevin Magnussen and Lando Norris their F1 debuts within the last decade and a half. So I guess if there is a top slash upper midfield team that has a history of blooding in rookies and giving them their chance to sort of get into the team and settle into Formula 1, then McLaren is the one that has done that most. And you think of both um, the successes that Lewis Hamilton and Lando Norris, and you could argue to a lesser extent Kevin Magnussen have had as well in Formula 1 and motorsport more generally. Um, let's move back to Alpine now, Joe. Obviously, this has been a pretty embarrassing week for Alpine, you could say, where they've gone from having three drivers competing for two seats to having one driver filling two seats. Um, Esteban Ocon, we know, is locked into a contract next year. 
a lot of discussions over who takes that second Alpine seat. Um, some names being thrown around. Um, but in many ways, a lot of these names have more red flags that potentially hold the seat being taken than positives. Pierre Gasly famously does not get on with Esteban Ocon. That would be, I think it's fair to say, a pretty terrible intra-team environment. Daniel Ricciardo burnt his bridges with Alpine after he left Renault in 2020. Very unlikely for him to come back. Um, Zhou Guan Yu, of course, a former Alpine Academy driver, but of course left the programme at the end of last year to join Alfa Romeo. Realistically, who do you see filling that seat next year? It's really, really tough because I've, I've heard a lot of, and maybe it's just speculation, not necessarily reports, but apparently Pierre Gasly and Esteban Ocon get along far better than they used to. Either way, I don't think it's necessarily the best lineup for the team. There's certainly no Alpine, and there's no true Alpine affiliated driver in there, considering that Ocon, I think, is still managed by Toto Wolff, despite having signed a multi-year contract. Um, apparently, Gasly has a break clause from his final year of uh, in the Red Bull family if a team higher than Alpha Tauri and the constructors can offer him a contract, which of course Alpine would fit. But again, I I don't know if they I don't know if they go and offer Gasly that contract. There's obviously there's Daniel Ricciardo, but as you've said, burnt his bridges. Granted, the leadership is very different. It's changed a lot in the last two years because of course it has. It's Team Enstone. But I also don't think he justifies anywhere near the salary that he would command. I understand that he's probably worth a hell of a lot more after this year than he would be after a third bad year at McLaren next year. But even so, I, I don't know if I'd be willing to give him a massive salary. Then there's Guan Yu Zhou, who I've praised an awful lot on this podcast, it must be said. But I don't necessarily think he justifies a move to a top half team based on his rookie season the only thing I would say in addition to that is that apparently there are rumors that Joe is actually at risk for 2023 because he's not bringing in quite as much money as was perhaps expected and anticipated in the first place so maybe he simply has to go to Alpine because Porsche replaces him down at Alfa Romeo honestly Cam I don't know Alpine have lost two star drivers in the space of one week this should not be possible. It's not been a good week for them, and especially as it seems that everything has sort of been flying under Otmar's half an hour's nose as well. Like, he almost has no idea what's going on in any press interview you have with him, and it very much sort of flows and brings the driver market wide open because, obviously, Sebastian Vettel's retirement was one seat that we um, didn't expect to come into place, um, didn't expect to be up. But then, obviously, Fernando Alonso leaving... Um, Alpine and now Piastri not taking that seat up. The driver market is a lot more open than it was a month ago. So let's just talk about how open it is. Um, Josh, coming to you first, obviously, the uh, we know now there's a competition over the second Alpine seat. Daniel Ricciardo potentially being taken to another team. Whether that's um, Alfa Romeo, for example, may have a seat open. Haas may have a seat open now. Um what do you think are the big things we need to be looking out for in the driver market? And who do you think could be moving where um, going into throughout the summer break and what we might see um, towards the end of the season? Well, um, I mean, Joe has already alluded to Guan Yu Joe and his future seemingly not as secure as one might expect after given his, his pretty impressive first season, I would say. Um, so that second seat next to Bottas in the Alfa Romeo might be up for grabs. Uh, obviously, 
um, that Williams seat is is very much is very, well. I don't think anymore, is it actually? Because I feel like in that, uh, and I don't know if we talked about Albon's uh, contract mm. extension, but it seemed to me that the Tifis are locked in for next season. At least that's what. I thought I saw. Well, Logan Someone... Sargent is a name that has uh, been coming up potentially to take that seat alongside Alex Albon next right. year. Right. Okay. So maybe it wasn't as confirmed, but I, I did. I, yeah. Anyway. Um, so obviously that William seat is up, is up for grabs. Uh, let's see. Haas. I mean, <sighs> teams with like, I guess a, a, a spot for one of their Academy uh, stars, I guess that seat's always going to be a, uh, up for grabs um so Haas I guess that Mick Schumacher seat that he's currently in I don't see them getting rid of Kevin Magnussen anytime soon uh so there's a few there's definitely a few seats granted all seemingly at the, at the back um but and obviously that I mean we've alluded to the Alpine one obviously I don't feel as though Ferrari well no I don't feel like they're gonna make any changes I don't see Mercedes definitely making any changes and obviously Sergio Perez has signed his new contract so th- those we can say with certainty and I mean we we talked about Yuki Snowda and Joe's talked about Yuki Snowda not living up to the promise maybe maybe that's something to see but again as he alludes to there's not really a ready-made replacement um in the Red Bull Academy so it seems to me that it, it, there are definitely spots available um what should we be looking out for? I suppose it, it's difficult because I don't, in the case of Guan Yu Zhou, for example, right? He's performed as well as probably we'd, we'd hope him to. And yet it appears to be, uh, as Joseph alludes to, um, a sponsor issue that's, that's, that's somewhat being an impediment to him securing his seat for the next season. So that's, and that's something you can't really publicly look out to. Those are sort of behind the scenes, private discussions that we're not privy to um, unless they get sort of leaked out. So it's really hard to say because Formula One is sort of a business in which the drivers have to bring business to the team as well as produce on the track. They have to contribute significantly off the track in terms of financials. That's something I guess we can't really sort of spot look out for, but you mentioned Logan, Logan Sargent. We, I guess we have to look at young drivers who are coming up in, in the feeder series um, and I guess see who maybe who they're allied to in terms of, in terms of sponsors, who they're sort of advertising for and whether and consider whether those sponsors would bring enough firepower or money um, to, to, to be able to appeal to an F1 team um, to take a chance on them. It's it's really difficult because it's really difficult. I'm finding it really difficult to answer because, as we've seen, seats are not necessarily determined on performance. But as I've said, it's it's off off track contributions. It's financial contributions, and so I honestly, it it's really hard to call. I I don't really I don't really know. Joe, do you want to jump in on this? I was just going to say that if through some miracle. They well, or some likely event now. They offer Pierre Gasly a contract, and he moves over to Alpine. Alpha Tauri are left with an absolutely shocking lineup for next year. Yeah, I would hate to see who they because obviously we talk about the Red Bull Juniors: Liam Lawson, Jan Deruvla, um, Dennis Hauger, Omu Owasa. I mean, Owasa obviously. I think his, I'd say, a timely victory at the fe- feature race in Paul Ricard for him, but. Nothing convincing to give him that seat at the moment. And I think, yeah, Red Bull have a few issues within their driver academy. I think I'm going to throw some names about. I mean, 
I'm obviously we had the multi-year extension from Alex Albon this week, but I don't know if there is a universe somewhere that Alex Albon could be bought out of that contract, bought into Alpine alongside Esteban Ocon, and maybe you have Logan Sargent and Nick DeFries getting that those Williams drives next year. I don't think the Tifi will be on the grid. I don't see any example where he will be on the grids next year. Um I think Alpha Tauri, I think Pierre Gazzi's more likely to end up driving Alpha Tauri than not, simply because I think Alpha Tauri will do everything they can to keep him. And Gasly is at least somewhat settled in that environment still. I think yeah, I think the interesting thing in I'd say the most likely driver to fill that second seat at the moment. Zhou Guan Yu is a name and I don't think Alpine Alpine know how to work with him and I don't think Alpine need the sponsorship at the same extent that Alfa Romeo do. I could very easily see Zhou Guan Yu going over to Alpine and then Ferrari putting Mick Schumacher alongside Valtteri Bottas and sort of taking a stronger claim over what was traditionally the Ferrari seat at Alfa Romeo and potentially Daniel Ricciardo then coming in to Haas there. But of course, the big sticking point with Haas, indeed all of these teams, Haas will no, no way be able to cough up the money and the salary that Ricardo could ask. So in very many ways, Daniel Ricardo could be off the grid next year. But I think certainly the biggest winner out of all of this in the driver market, I would say, is Logan Sargent, who I would say has definitely now got a confirmed seat at Williams next year. Um, Joe, I'm going to finish off with you. Anything else you want to add on the driver market and the impact of the last week on that? All of this chaos, all of this confusion. Felipe Drogovic leading the Formula 2 championship. His name has not come up once and he still hasn't signed up to a junior academy. Just shows you what a mess F2 has been this year. You know, there's the thing is, there's just no pressure coming from F2 into Formula 1. The only driver who at the moment vaguely looks like they've got a chance of getting in is Logan Sargent. Yes, Teo Pocher, but Teo Pocher's form this season has been dreadful. The only other driver from the His outside... reliability this year has been dreadful. His form's been pretty good. There's reliability, yes, but frequent mistakes as well. Not the Pocher, I think, that many people were expecting him to be. And certainly a lot of people expecting he would go and dominate this season with the talent that he's had. I mean, a good driver, but... I know maybe Alfa Romeo will put him alongside Valtteri Bottas next year. They might see that he's ready to be promoted. But certainly Porsche, Logan Sargent, maybe Nick De Vries as well, the only other drivers coming in from the outside. But it's fair to say, knowing how the driver market goes, we're going to end up with an Alfa Tauri lineup next year of Jehan Zaruvla and Liam Lawson. And on that note, I'm going to leave you from the Armchair for One podcast today. As ever, thanks so much to Josh and to Joe for coming on again. Plenty, as you can see, to discuss. And we were supposed to be on the summer break this week, but that tells you just how much has been going on in the world of Formula One. We will be back next week um, with more content. So take a listen to that. Follow us as ever on at Armchair F1 Pod across social media and on all major streaming platforms as well. Um, as ever, thanks very much for listening. Thanks for listening.